Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton musician Tommy Swick turns to GoFundMe to help his ailing dog. A new study from McMaster University suggests dirt could help make a new malaria drug. The city of Hamilton honors Canadian Football Hall of Famer Russ Jackson. Canadians want the government to nix the PCR test requirement for travelers. Facebook is now called Meta, but is it any different? And ho ho oh no, how the supply chain woes will impact the holiday season. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Anyone who has had a pet in need of veterinary care can relate to this next story, especially if you've needed to do so during the pandemic. There is certainly a backlog and uh, it's tough to get an appointment, but in an emergency setting, um, wowzers. And that's uh, what uh, the word that comes to mind with our next story about um, Tommy Swick, Hamilton rocker, Juno award winner. Uh, he had to set up a GoFundMe page to pay for his dog's sky-high vet bills. And he used up all his personal savings to save his dog after a, a really wild and tragic story that uh, we think has a good ending because we hear his dog is doing much, much better. Tommy Swick, Hamilton musician, joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Tommy, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing, Rick? Not too bad. Yourself? Uh- uh, not too bad. Better than it was a few days ago. But, I, uh, yeah. yeah, it was, it was funny to hear my voice. There, it's a fresh-faced young uh, young guy that was singing that song. It's funny to hear that again. <laughs> hey, you still sound great. I'm sure. <laughs> um, tell us about your story and, and your dog. Yeah. So about a couple weeks ago, I was up north, and my friends and I had purchased some land to build a you know a kind of a hunt camp, you know, kind of you know bug out kind of area. And I was up there waiting for a family, my brother-in-law, and my nephew to come across to help me a few days and I went across the lake at night with my dogs who grew up on the on the water who's been you know who's been on the boat a million times and even I you know barriers to stop him from, from this happening he uh fell over the front front of the pontoon boat got sucked under the boat hit by the motor and the propeller basically and at night and uh got severely injured and uh yeah I had to rush him out of the woods so seven hours north I had to rush him out of the woods um find emergency veterinary care in the north for a few days until we get him uh, transferred to somewhere for the, in the south for a orthopedic surgery and it's uh it's been a one hell of a nightmare i can tell you you must have been losing your mind as you're pulling your dog out of the water yeah i was i was it was terrifying honestly i mean i heard it i heard the boat i tried to disengage the motor and slow down but uh it was freezing cold water pitch black there's no lights there's nothing in there you're, we're in the bush for real and so i could hear him howling and just you know, bloody murder and, and slashing, and all I could see was his eyes trying to find him. So I, I got to, pull, I finally pulled around to get him, and I, in my head I was like, "Oh my God, I'm gonna have to put my dog down." Like, what? If, what's this motor done to him? It's a powerful motor. I thought like, you know, anything could be wrong. It could be cut in half for all I know. You know, I was sick with worry, uh, panic, and uh, so when I got a hold of him, pulled him out, he was bleeding everywhere, and uh, his leg was shattered to pieces and almost hanging off, and. Uh, it was a bad dash to get out of there. It was pretty bad. So you got him to the vet, and uh, the prognosis uh, didn't look uh, very good. Uh, well, so when we finally found a vet, you know, we, we found a great vet, Dr. Silver, in Englehart, uh, Ontario. And this is 11 p.m. He called his staff in, and, uh, you know, they took him. He was bleeding. He had lacerations all over him, and his leg was shattered to pieces. So he was like, you're lucky you didn't you know, cut him, cut him cut, you know, like I said, cut him in half, cut the leg off, or, or way worse. Um, so they did x-rays. They saw that, uh, um, his femur was shattered to pieces and that, um, he was bleeding out pretty bad, but they were able to stabilize him. 
so they said, listen, if we can get him to orthopedic surgery, you know, we may be able to save him and the leg. But there's no one around because of COVID. There's no one around till Monday, and this is a Friday night. So they had to stabilize him and with the broken leg and all the lacerations that they couldn't even heal for two, two and a half days until I could get him south to, uh, to somewhere. We're chatting with Tommy Swick, Hamilton area recording artist, Juno Award winner, about his uh, dog who fell into the water, was uh, you know, uh, cut by his uh, propeller on his pontoon boat. You get him to a vet, and now the vet bills start to pile up, and you have to turn to GoFundMe because now you're tapped out. Oh, yeah. So basically, I mean, I, I was like, okay, I'll do whatever I can do to try to help them. So COVID's been brutal for everybody, you know, and musicians, you know, just as bad or worse. And um, so, you know, I, I was actually coming out of this thing, you know, I've got a little bit of money saved here still. I've been able to survive this. And next thing I know, you know, three seconds of disaster, uh, all the $10,000 or so that I had left, you know, to, to my name, really, uh, I had to throw it at the dog, you know, trying to save his life. So next, by the time I'm at $12,000, he's already had one surgery. And, you know, I could go into the disaster that, you know, frustrations with you know my own vet here in Hamilton that I won't name but they were terrible to deal with and then getting to emergency vet services that are the prices are astronomical it's unbelievable that they can charge for that for these services when people are really vulnerable you know but uh, I was determined so I was super reluctant to go to a GoFundMe or anything like that because I'm a proud guy and you know I try to pay it all myself but I was so tapped out and then like 150 people were like do a GoFundMe, man. Just swallow your pride. Save your dog. Just do it. And I thought, you know what? This dog's giving me more joy and companionship and love in my life uh, than I could ever show him. So I have to swallow my pride and try to save him. So I, uh, I did. And people, I'm, I'm, I was, you know, absolutely humbled by it, by the response of, of friends and acquaintances and strangers and businesses to help me save, you know, my best friend. So it, it was crazy. Yeah, the goal was about 8000 You raised, I think, north of 12000 which really, you know, strikes a chord with many, uh, not only pet owners, but many Hamiltonians and their giving spirits. Really quick, because we got to go, how's your dog doing now? He's doing way better. Uh, they were able to save his leg. Uh, hopefully still damaged, but save his life, more importantly. So he's uh, he's on the mend. He's got a very long road recovery, more surgeries, and, you know, a lot more work to go. But uh, he is alive and recovering so much better after the second surgery and blood transfusion. So thank you so much to everybody for uh, helping me to save this guy. I appreciate it. Tom, thanks for the time. And uh, uh, hopefully you and your dog have many more years of uh, happiness to come. I'm hoping so. Thank you so much for the time. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I saw this headline and I just had to find out more. Dirt may be the secret to a more effective malaria treatment. McMaster study. This is out of the Hamilton Spectator and certainly on McMaster's website. A new study has found that a bacteria that gives dirt its smell after it rains could help establish a new, more effective anti-malarial drug. This is nuts. Dr. Jerry Wright is co-principal investigator for the research finding the promising anti-malarial compound and professor of biochemistry and biomedical sciences and lead of Canada's global nexus and pandemics and biological threats at McMaster. And he joins us now. Dr. Wright, good morning. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? Not too bad. Yourself? Great. Um, how did you even land on the smell of dirt? Yeah, it's a, it's a cool story. It turns out that most of the medicines that we have, uh, you know, penicillins, you know, antibiotics, uh, things that kill back 
bacteria, um, immune-suppressing drugs, uh, a lot of ca- uh, cancer drugs come from these bacteria that live in the soil, and, and they're exactly right. They're the, they're the reason that dirt smells like dirt. It's that lovely sort of smell that you get when you you know put a spade into the into your turf and you open it up. It's, it's that smell comes from these bacteria that live that, in, in there. There's all different kinds. And they all make different uh, molecules. And uh, one of the, we found this one that it makes this antimalarial compound. So you're not necessarily grabbing an old pickle jar and grabbing some of the air around dirt to, to uh, uh, capture that smell. You're grabbing the molecules in the soil. That's right. We're grabbing the bacteria that make them. And so we, uh, we've done this, uh, you know, in samples of, uh, of dirt from, um, you know, all around Canada. This, this particular sample came from my mom's uh, backyard. She had that, she used to have her uh, winter home in, in Florida. So she had an orange tree in the back and we went and got a little sample there. And that's where that this specific uh, bacteria comes from. But we have a collection of about 15,000 that Mac uh, bacteria uh, and fungi that live in the dirt and make all these amazing compounds. So how do you develop this into a drug? What happens now? So, so now it's, it's, it's really the, the, actually in many ways the easy work, even though it took about 10 years uh, for it to happen, uh, has happened. So we found, we found the molecule. We know that it's a thousandfold more toxic to the malaria parasite than it is to humans. And now it's a matter of trying to figure out whether or not we can package this in some kind of way to be able to turn it into a medicine that could actually get to the, you know, almost half a million people who die every year of, of malaria. And, and that's going to require some significant investment and, and some, you know, people with skills that I don't have, like, like, the, like a large pharmaceutical company. So this is the stage we're at right now? That's correct. Yeah. So we're, it's called a preclinical stage. So we're testing it out on animals, making sure that it's all safe and everything's looking really good. It's just now a matter of trying to figure out whether or not, um, you know, it has the correct properties to get it to uh, into people. We're chatting with uh, Dr. Jerry Wright about uh, dirt holding the secret to a more effective malaria treatment. What is the status of malaria on on the global sense? Yeah, malaria remains the most devastating infectious disease outside of COVID. Uh, you know, in previous in previous years, I would be able to make that statement easily, but outside of COVID, it's the most devastating infectious disease on the planet still. Um, it affects, you know, of course, the the, uh, the most vulnerable p- uh, parts of the world and in disproportionately children. So about 400,000 people a year die from malaria and almost 300,000 of those are children under the age of five. And, uh, you know, this is just something that we just shouldn't have in the 21st century. And there's, you know, we've heard some, some great news about a potential vaccine coming on the market, but we're really going to need good medicines going forward. And the medicines we have, the parasite that causes malaria, which is a nefarious one, right? It's it's spread by mosquitoes and has this really amazing life cycle in humans, um, is resistant to, increasingly resistant to the medicines that we have now. So we, we really do need new drugs for this. For this. And uh, we're, we're hopeful that the, what we found in this sample here at McMaster University is going to be uh, a step in the right direction for this. Yeah. Well, let's hope this discovery leads to uh, some medicine that uh, really changes the world. That could be exciting. Dr. Wright, thanks for the time today. 
My pleasure, That's Dr. Jerry Wright, Professor of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at the Michael G. DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. Really exciting stuff that they're doing there. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You got quite emotional during your speech. This really means a lot to you. Oh, it sure does. It's something we've, you know, been waiting for happening with COVID. It's pushed it back a couple of years and so on, but... uh, it's, it's, it's great to be honored in this way, especially right here in Hamilton, which was both my wife and I, we lived and worked here and went to school here, and uh, coming back and being honored like this is really special. When you think of the Russ Jackson football field, what do you want it to be for this community? I just want it to be someplace that the kids have an opportunity to, uh, to play, to grow, to, to learn uh, the good things about life. And uh, there's so many bad things that they hear about all the time. And uh, to be able to come up here and play football and just enjoy life, that's what it's all about. You had a great story during your speech today about how your career almost didn't go the way it did with a, a tuba story. Can you just recount that story? Because it's it's an amazing story. Well, we were out uh, the junior. I had made the junior football team uh, when I was in grade 12 at West Hill High School, and I didn't know the routine, but uh, as the routine goes, the first game of the season, we all got dressed early, naturally the football players, and we're out on the practice field and throwing the ball around, and I didn't realize that the, the band went with the football team on the bus to the game, the juniors, and they came back with the seniors and because uh, they'd play the second game of the doubleheader. And out there, there were, the musicians were there, like we were practicing football, they were getting the musical instruments uh, tuned up, and there was a big tube out there going, oom-pah, oom-pah. And this tube was sitting there, and the guys came over to me and says, I bet you can't. I bet you can't. And I finally I realized, you know, they're giving me the shot. You know, can you put the ball in there? And I didn't do it. And finally, the bet came that whether could or couldn't, and got rather healthy. So I decided, well, I want to give it a shot. I can. And I threw it right in the middle of the tuba, and that was it. And um, I almost didn't even start playing football because if my dad had ever heard that story, he would have dragged me right out of that right away, saying, "You can't afford this." But with the money I won on the bet and the guys chipping in, we paid to get the tuba repaired, which the principal required us to do, and uh, things went on from there. So it was a real awakening to me. Yeah. You had an amazing career, obviously, both on and off the field. You had a lot of uh, former teammates here as well. What does that mean to you? Oh, it's terrific. We've, uh, from University at McMaster, we have a group, and we're looking 60 years ago. I mean, it's a long time. And we get together at least once a year with our wives for uh, a lunch and they're here today with their wives and celebrating this with me and it's kind of special you know and that's that you've known these guys gals for so long and we still get together and still enjoy being with each other and uh, i've you know, the, to me, it's really important that uh, they were here and a part of this because they really were a part of it at McMaster University. Is there, is there one moment in your career, whether it's football or teaching or whatever, that you relive from time to time in your mind to say, wow, what a special moment that was? Uh, I don't think so. I, I, I think the first 
Grey Cup in terms of the professional ranks. The first Grey Cup we won in 1960 was early in my career because I started in 58. And uh, I threw a touchdown pass in that game and we beat the big Edmonton Eskimo team that was just sort of going over the cusp of being a terrific team with Johnny Bright and Jackie Parker and all that group. And, and we won the Grey Cup out in Vancouver. And, and we won a couple other ones after that, but that one was special because as a Canadian kid, you, I went to so many different games, I went and watched those guys win Grey Cups as the Edmonton Eskimos, and to, to beat that team specifically and win our first Grey Cup. I'll always remember that one. Last year was a difficult year for Canadian Football League fans because of COVID. The, the league is back this year. How, how nice is it just to see football back again? Well, it's great. I mean, it was missed by a lot of people. I mean, it, it really was. And so were a lot of things. But football, Canadian football is special. Always has been, always will be, I hope. And uh, not having it and uh, just seeing it disappear like that and having to come back sort of partly this year uh, I'm just hoping that after this year we get over the COVID and things really, you know, jump and and we get back to a regular schedule and uh, regular Grey Cup and, yes. and things like that. So uh, I, I think it was missed. We don't realize, that, that's for a lot of things, you don't realize how much things are missed until they're gone type of thing. It's it's like when someone passes away in your family, you, you, you take everything for granted and uh, then all of a sudden uh, you realize that things are important. And football in Canada and the Great Cup are important. You have the Great Cup in Hamilton this year for the first time in 25 years. Uh, do you plan to attend? Oh, yes. We'll be there. I got my tickets. <laughs> yeah, we'll be there sitting up in the stands. Uh, I don't yell too much at football games. I just observe. <laughs> well, congratulations. Uh, looking forward to seeing you uh, and uh, a bunch of your family members enjoying this uh, facility oh, yeah. and, and the future. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It doesn't appear, at least at this point, that the federal government is going to budge on you and I having to provide a negative COVID-19 PCR test when the U.S. border opens on November the 8th. That's the land border, uh, which is one week from today. Now, fully vaccinated Canadians right now are able to visit America without having to get a test if they're flying in. But once that land border opens, you will have to provide a negative test on the way back into Canada. And uh, it's not cheap. Canadians will have to shell out upwards of The highest price I've seen is $375 for a test. That's bonkers. That is absolutely nuts. Jana Ray is the chief operating officer at CanAge, Canada's National Seniors Advocacy Association, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Jana. Good morning. If a family of four (laughs) drives across the border, that's a very pricey trip. Indeed it is, both uh, going and coming, for sure. So uh, what is the association calling for in terms of this PCR test? Well, you know, we, again, you know, we're, we're obviously uh, looking to um, ensure that Canadians are healthy and such. And so we believe that tests are good. Where there is a challenge and, and where we see that there is a challenge is, for example, like you just mentioned about, you know, traveling over to the U.S. Let's say, for example, you know, lots of Hamiltonians certainly, um, you know, are probably looking forward to cross-border shopping, maybe something like that, you know, crossing over the border. That means they'll get a test. 
um, they'll spend the $250 or so to get that test to go over and come back within 72 hours. And they could very well have been exposed to people in the U.S., but the, the, the government is not requiring an additional test when you come back in, which is kind of interesting, right? Because the whole point is that you're, you're double vaxxed, you're leaving, you're coming back, and, and, and the exposure might have happened there as opposed to being here. So there's some confusion certainly on, on that front. Um, and then, of course, uh, the high cost of, of going and coming when you're traveling uh, by air, of course. Can Canadians get a test in the U.S. or do they have to get it here before they cross the border? Uh, they're supposed to get it here before they depart, actually. Um, and actually, the U.S. doesn't require any tests. Uh, they made that announcement uh, just in the last few days that they won't be requiring any tests of Canadians crossing into the U.S. It's actually mandated by Canada, and they are suggesting that you get that before you make your departure. And uh, if you are um, within that 72 hours and cross back over, then you're not required to take a second test to come back in. And I know that the antigen rapid testing is much cheaper, like $40 I saw online uh, yesterday. Is that allowed or do you, does it have to be a PCR test? Has to be a PCR test. That's right. And and the issue here is that, you know, is is all travel uh, considered a luxury? And, and and we would say no. So from Canada's perspective, you know, there's lots of people that have been isolated, that have not seen their family and friends. Lots of people have family over the border um, and would like to make that track uh, to see people, especially during the holidays. American Thanksgiving is coming up, etc. And, and you know, unfortunately, that's going to come at a cost with the, with the PCR test, which doesn't really make a lot of sense when you're, like I said, within these windows and that kind of thing. And, of course, you're double vaccinated. And in the case of many older adults, like the folks that we represent, some of them are, are moving towards being triple vaxxed. So, um, you know, the, the protection is quite high, and yet we're sort of scratching our heads and wondering, um, you know, if this feels almost like a luxury tax in a way in terms of uh, cost. Do we know where this money is going to? Uh, in terms of, so most of the, uh, of the testing actually is, is going through uh, private enterprise, so labs and this kind of thing, which, of course, you know, when we're looking at centralized healthcare and that sort of thing, you know, if you, if you suspect that you're ill, you can walk into a clinic and you can get a PCR test, um, you know, free of charge, and, uh, and that is covered, but not for travel. So that's where the difference is, and that's where you're paying that additional amount, and that's to private providers. Jane O'Reilly is our guest, Chief Operating Officer at CanAge, Canada's National Seniors Advocacy Association. I can't imagine at this point, given the cost, that many Canadians are going to be driving over the border until this requirement is dropped. Do you get that sense as well? Uh, I certainly do. I certainly do. I think that that'll definitely temper a lot of people's plans, unfortunately. But, um, you know, it's, uh, details are still emerging and it's still uh, changing all the time. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, has said that the government is reviewing its testing mandate, but is, is there any indication that this is going to be dropped before November the 8th? Uh, before the November the 8th, no. I don't foresee it being dropped before November the 8th. Um, you know, possibly as we go down the line here, I know that um, they've gone on the record to say that, uh, you know, the testing has shown that most people that are traveling, they're showing a, a, a less than 0.5% instance rate. In fact, I've even heard reports of less than 0.2% instance rate of COVID for people who are fully vaxxed and traveling um, via the PCR test results. So um, I, I definitely think they're going to be looking at those numbers and wondering if these costs are justified for sure. Wow, good stuff. Jaina, thanks for the time today and uh, good luck with this fight.
Okay, thanks so much. That's Jenna Ray, Chief Operating Officer at CanAge, Canada's National Seniors Advocacy Association. And imagine that, a, a family of four or five, if you have three kids and a husband and wife or whatever the case is, and you go over the border and cha-ching, that is a ton of cash out of your you know travel budget. If you want to go down for some Black Friday shopping or visiting relatives in the U.S. or friends, whatever the case is, uh, that's a lot of money just to get tested, knowing that you're fully vaccinated. The rapid antigen testing is available at a much, much cheaper rate. You know, $40 compared to as high as 300 or north of that or a little bit south of that. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I don't see the rules changing prior to November 8th. I think the Canadian government is going to give it about a month and then come early December, just before the holidays, I suspect. Um, if, you know, a lot of these tests have come back negative, I think they'll be comforted in the fact that, you know, fully vaccinated Canadians, uh, most of them at least, if not all of them, are coming back and they're still okay. So that might give them some thought to uh, change the rules. We shall see. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Facebook rebranding itself in an effort to encompass its virtual reality vision for the future. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced the company's new name on Thursday. It is time for us to adopt a new company brand to encompass everything that we do. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Meta! M-E-T-A. He's calling the company's vision for the future of Metaverse and sees it as a place where people will be able to interact in a virtual ecosystem, if you will. And he's anticipating it's going to create millions of jobs for creators. Will it? Well, let's ask tech analyst Carmi Levy, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Carmi. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Great to be here. Your thoughts on Meta? You know, one word, meh. You know, I, <laughs> I, 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 I want to believe that this is going to be a thing. We've been talking about the metaverse. This has been around since the early 90s, a novel called Snow Crash. Uh, you know, this is sort of one of those. It, it's almost like the great white whale of technology. It's out there on the horizon. It could be the next cool big thing. Uh, but the reality is we're not there yet. The technologies that would make it possible aren't there. This sort of 3D immersive world where you can kind of go in and interact with people, even if they're halfway around the world, uh, by using an avatar that looks kind of like you. It sounds amazing. And honestly, I see the demos and I get excited. Uh, but this is one of those things, you know, do I really want Facebook bringing it to me? And is this just Facebook kind of trying to get us to focus on something else because it's got a whole bunch of other problems on its plate, and it doesn't want us to worry about that for now. Yeah, it's saying, hey, look at this new shiny toy. Forget about all the other stuff that we're <laughs> being accused of, right? Exactly. It's it's uh, it's ultimate distraction. And I have to admit, Facebook's done a really good job of getting us to talk about that, not about the whistleblower testimony, uh, not about the Facebook papers, not about uh, investigations into whether it, uh, it influenced the election, allowed misinformation, disinformation to flow on its platforms. I mean, I can probably talk about this for the next hour and not run out of 
bad things to say about what Facebook has been into for the better part of the last decade. So this is the ultimate distraction move. Hey, you know, look over here. Don't pay attention to all that bad stuff we've been talking about for years. We're just going to paint, you know, the outside a little bit. We're going to put lipstick on this, you know, very uh, large and obvious pig. And we're going to hope that you don't notice. And to me, that's somewhat disingenuous. I really would rather the company take its, its, its resources and focus it on fixing what is obviously a broken culture. I think that would be more worthwhile than trying to create something new uh, and get us to focus on that instead. And saying that, and I agree with all of that, from a corporate perspective, is this move to Meta uh, very similar to what Google has in Alphabet? It really is. You know, Google was known originally, obviously, as the search company, but over the years, its focus expanded uh, into a much broader array of web services, advertising businesses, content delivery, things like that. So it made sense for Google to create the Alphabet parent company and then put all of its constituent brands underneath it. Uh, and that seems to have worked fairly well for Google. But, you know, here we are a number of years after they announced that change. We still Google things. We don't Alphabet things. So corporately, it made sense, but culturally, it really hasn't changed a whole lot. And I think that's where Facebook is going to go as well. It does not want to be seen as the social media company because like search, social media will not be the thing 10 years from now. The world will have moved on. So Facebook is preparing itself for a post-social era and it wants to, and, and it's it's basically saying, we believe that's going to be the metaverse. Uh, is that actually going to play out or are we going to see Facebook any differently? No, the Facebook app isn't changing name. It'll still be Facebook. You'll still access facebook.com. Um, so it's more of a corporate change than a cultural change. Uh, I'm not going to suddenly go share things with my friends on Meta. I'm still going to be sharing them on Facebook for the foreseeable future. And as far as consumers are concerned, we've had over a decade and a half to get used to these brands. That's not going to change either. Our guest is Carmi Levy. He's a tech analyst, and we're chatting about uh, Facebook's rebranding to Meta. Regarding the Metaverse, that immersive 3D avatar-filled world, uh, you mentioned we're not very close to it. What, what are we looking at, 10, 15, 20 years away? A lot of it depends on two things. There's there's the advancement of technology. So we need to sort of shift away from the devices that we use today, which are largely uh, screen-based. So if you think about it, everything is a flat rectangular screen, your smartphone, your tablet, your laptop. And the way you interact with it and the way you interact with Facebook is you scroll through a fairly linear feed. Uh, that's going to switch to virtual reality goggles, uh, augmented reality glasses, immersive technologies that are ubiquitous. And so you won't have to sit in front of a screen. The screen will literally be part of you, or it might even be a hologram um, that is displayed in front of you in 3D. And then you can walk through it virtually. So it sounds really cool, but the reality is not, we don't have those technologies. We don't have the computing power to drive them seamlessly. Uh, and frankly, our culture hasn't evolved to the point that we can really integrate that. Can you imagine someone using a virtual reality headset in the middle of, say, a corporate meeting? Would that make sense? What would that even look like? We haven't established those norms. So this isn't a, a, a two or a three or a five year project. It is a 10 or 15 year project. And even then, 
like so many promises of technology, like the Jetsons cars, we've been waiting decades for them and we still haven't gotten them. So I, I would expect we would get 10 to 15 years out and Mark Zuckerberg's vision will still not be there. It'll, and even when it does get here, it'll look very different than those slick videos that he showed us last week. Got about 90 seconds with uh, tech analyst Carmi Levy. One more question, and it relates to what Mark Zuckerberg is predicting in, in which the metaverse is going to create millions of jobs for creators. Is that realistic? Well, I think it's a, it's a lovely talking point, and it sounds good, and it makes him look like a hero. But the reality is we've already seen technology create millions of jobs for creators. Just look at the, the TikTok or the Instagram influencer economy. That's, that's where today's opportunity is being driven. And let's not give uh, Facebook or Meta or whatever we call it any more credit than they deserve. They're not going to drive this, this uh, need for new uh, jobs or this, these opportunities. The industry is going to Facebook. Facebook is but one company that, that wants to be a part of it. So, so yes, there will be more, but the fact that we create a metaverse and that creates new jobs, it isn't such a black and white comparison. It isn't such a direct uh, relationship. And I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for Mark Zuckerberg to, to be creating these jobs. Industry will move on its own pace and those jobs will be created orga organically. In fact, it's already happening. And all you need to do is scroll through your feed and realize there are a lot of people who are creating their own opportunities. They're not waiting for Mark Zuckerberg to do it for them. That's for sure. Tech analyst Carmi Levy, thanks as always for the time. Enjoy the rest of your day. I appreciate being here, Rick. Thanks. A great analysis as always from Carmi Levy on the emergence of Meta and uh, the existence of Facebook uh, Facebook, and the, um, well, we, we, we think maybe in our lifetime um, the metaverse will be a thing. I can't really think of an application in which right now we would use something like uh, VR goggles in a board setting. It would kind of look weird, might be cool to be a part of, but uh, if we're face-to-face -face or even doing something virtually, I'm not sure why the 3D world or virtual world is needed. We will uh, wait and, and watch as much more smarter people than me <laughs> do those types of things. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I'm allocating additional funding to help American partners, as well as the United States, cut port congestion by slashing red tape and reducing processing times so that ships can get in and out of our ports faster. That is U.S. President Joe Biden at the G20 summit, where world leaders focused on global supply chain issues. And in this episode of Short Supply... Short Supply, the supply chain crisis. Oh, oh, oh no. How is the supply chain going to impact the holiday shopping season with no end in sight to this global supply chain shortage. This year's Christmas shopping season is being thrown for a bit of a loop. Here to explain is Erica Alini, national online journalist for money and consumer affairs with Global News, and joins us now. Good morning, Erica. Good morning. So are Christmas shoppers under the gun? Yes, a little bit, I would say so. And how so? I mean, are we looking at higher prices, not enough stock? What are some of the factors contributing to all this? So both, uh, possibly. Um, so it, it's it's difficult to to tell exactly, you know, uh, what what is going to be in 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 short supply because uh, uh, those things can be pretty unpredictable. But generally speaking, uh, toys, electronics small kitchen appliances, uh, and uh, even artificial Christmas trees and decor 
uh, those are seeing some real uh, challenges in terms of uh, supply chain. So what are retailers doing to combat this? Are they doing anything? Well, uh, yeah, what they've been trying to do um, is order early. We've heard that from both, um, you know, the big box retailers as well as small independent businesses. Uh, they, they started placing orders really early. Um, but even so, um, we were just uh, speaking uh, with a um, a toy store here in Toronto and uh, a toy store owner, and she was she was telling us. It's really unpredictable what's going to be in short supply. So she was um, having trouble getting toy barns and trains uh, for some reason. Um, so it's really, um, I think the message here is, um, you know, if you really want a particular product, a particular brand, um, and you just want that and nothing else will do, like even if you have a, a really picky kid, <laughs> Um, who's asking Santa for something very specific and probably trying to get on it right now is a good idea. How do you think this is going to impact uh, two of the biggest shopping days that are coming up in Black Friday and Cyber Monday? So I think those are going to be really diluted uh, through the month of November. Uh, so we um, Amazon um, announced Black Friday-like uh, deals uh, in in mid October, uh, they they announced mid October that those in fact had already started earlier in the month. Um, we talked to Walmart Canada, and they also said that they were going to roll out uh, deals uh, throughout November. Um, so it seems like it really everything is being uh, pulled forward. Um, and you know, we we've been talking for years about the phenomenon of the the Christmas creep, right? Like Christmas was encroaching. <laughs> almost on Halloween, right? And that was, uh, you know, it was a mar- marketing tactic. But this year, it's like, it's extreme, and it really is supply chain issues. Yeah, I remember seeing Christmas stuff back in September, and I thought, oh my gosh, it's not even October yet. Uh, Erica Alini is our guest, National Online Journalist for Money and Consumer Affairs with Global News. Um, are more people going to shop local, do you think? Because they can see it, so they can feel it, they they have it in their hands? I think shop, uh, shopping locally is uh, one strategy uh, that people can, can use to try to get around this. And so we talked about shopping early, shopping locally for something. Um, you know, for example, uh, wooden toys, that's a great option. Um, there are a lot of uh, local um, artisans and manufacturers, um, so that could be uh, something. But you have to remember... Shopping locally, or if you're talking about shopping in local stores rather than made in Canada, um, a lot of small retailers are having huge challenges getting stock, uh, probably, you know, often more so than uh, the big box retailers that have uh, more resources. And even when you're talking about made in Canada, um, if anything is being sourced outside of Canada, then you might run into supply chain issues anyways. Interesting stuff. Erica Alini, thanks for the time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Erica is a national online journalist for money and consumer affairs with Global News in our latest short supply series, focusing on how the supply chain is going to impact your holiday shopping this year. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.